instantly my brain switched to, well, if I'm not making money, then there can only be one other thing that I'm doing. I can only be doing this because it's fun. And so anytime something happened that wasn't fun or I was doing something I didn't want to do that wasn't fun, I just said, I'm not going to do this. It allowed me to focus my coaching on what brings me the most fun. And I think what happened was people saw that and they saw how energized I am and how much I freaking love this. Because literally, if I don't love it, if I don't love the person or I don't love what I'm coaching or how I'm coaching, I just say, I'm not doing it anymore. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. I am absolutely devastated that I am not here with you in person. Well, I mean, in Co- the devastation is not being in Kauai. No, yeah, of course. No, of course I care about me. I mean, <laughs> I'm so sad that I can't be there. And I'll tell you, honestly, it's sad for a few reasons. Number one, as I've gotten to study you and your methods and everything, I've grown to really respect what you're doing and what you're all about. And so... I wanted to just spend more time with you and being in person is always a good excuse to do that. So that was number one. Number two, it looks a lot nicer there than it is here. (laughs) And that's number two. And then the third thing is I did have a conflict and the conflict almost relieved me of a feeling that I continued to have, which was this firm is very good to me and they give me an incredible amount of leeway and autonomy. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And This is a Kleiner Perkins Grit podcast, no mistake about it. But part of me was like, gosh, the opportunity cost of my time and for the firm is high to come spend time with you out there. And part of me almost felt this burden of relieved from me, if you will. Yeah. Anyway, that's my preamble to this. (laughs) But actually, it sort of brings up a good point is that we, I can't tell you how many CEOs and I'm sure you have this feeling as well, people that work with you, there, there's this, this sense that people aren't working hard. They're not really giving their all. They're not trying. How do I make people work hard? How do I get people to try? And it's because the CEOs don't see it. They don't see the output. But it's almost always because they haven't given the team members enough information if everyone had the information the CEO had, you would see super workers all over the place. Because in my experience, everyone wants to perform for the company. I don't know a single person that joins a company and then says, oh, I want to do a shitty job. Like nobody thinks that. They all want to perform. The only question is, are they given enough information to perform? Like you right now, you're like, yeah, I feel this weight, this burden of performing for Kleiner. And my guess is that if you worked for yourself, you would have come to Kauai. I would have. 
Yeah. 100%. And I'll tell you why I would have. And I can I can rationalize and justify 10 ways to one. But ultimately, it's the same justification that I use for this podcast, which is now we have this massive audience that's unbelievable. And we have a distribution that is meaningful. And we can do all sorts of unique, creative and interesting things with this that we otherwise couldn't do 140 episodes ago. But let's take that all aside. Yeah. My original goal was, hey, Outside of all of this, why do I spend time studying Matt or studying Nikesh or studying whoever I've had on for hours? Like, why is this such a labor of love for me? And I think the reason is because it's a very virtuous cycle for the job that I occupy at the firm, which is that I'm expected to be a trusted advisor to our founders, full stop. And so the research that I do getting to know the greatest operators in the world and the ways that they've built their companies in many capacities, then reinforces my ability to be a more effective coach to our founders. And so it would be the same thought process that I would take with you, which is like, you're by all intents and purposes, seemingly our days, Bill Campbell. If true, I start to kick myself, (laughs) you know, like like, like, uh, then maybe I'm an idiot. In the sense that maybe I should have moved hell and high water, no. moved this recording. No, 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 no. But that's also the fun thing that you're talking about is that you get to go study the things that interest you, knowing that each thing, each person you talk to and each thing you study is going to create value that you can then share with founders because you're talking to the best operators. And same thing for me. Like in my life, almost everything that I'm curious about and then want to go study and learn if I find value in it, I immediately share that value with the people I coach. Yeah. It's like this virtuous cycle of if I'm curious about it, it's worth spending time on it. Yeah, I totally agree. One of the questions that I get asked a lot now is, you know, Jubin, who's made you the most starstruck? Who has been the most intimidating? First of all, do you get that question? And if not, I guess I'm asking you it now. Like, has there been a person that you felt a heightened level of anticipation before you met? Someone that you were so excited by? And I know it's hard because you can't really pick favorites. So I'm not asking you to do that. But just in general, someone where before you felt like this knot in your stomach of, excitement, nerves, wanting to deliver the goods, you know, someone that you really... I think I can totally answer that question. It's not picking a favorite. I think yeah. it's, I think when you hear the answer, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And by the way, this person, I'll sort of delay the answer for a little while to keep the mystery going. I used to hold, when I was in person back in San Francisco, I used to host these CEO dinners. And sometimes I would invite in someone to come talk to us. And I had many different sort of pretty amazing people come in. And, you know, CEOs of $100 billion companies and things like that. And then I had this person come in and people asked him questions and he shared answers. Half of the answers, by the way, I completely disagreed with. But all of my CEOs are there. And these are CEOs of like $10 billion companies. And there's 12 of them sitting around a dinner. And you could hear a pin drop. Like they soaked up every word that he said. And it's pretty amazing. So I'm not the only one who sort of thinks this guy is like, whoa, we better listen. And that's Sam Altman. So I remember when I was introduced to him probably five years ago, mine wasn't so much that like, oh, I think he's a god standing on a pedestal, but he was just very much in demand. And so his time was very precious. And he's also famous for not giving away time. He's incredibly responsive on a text or email because he doesn't have standing meetings. 
So he's able to respond to anyone who's within his circle of that he wants to be related to. Whereas you and I can sort of keep relationships up with maybe a hundred people. He has the ability to keep up relationships with 2000 people. And that's because again, he doesn't have these standing meetings. So he's constantly able to respond and people feel good about that. When they get a response, they reach out to Sam and then they get a response, you know, three minutes later, like, whoa, that's incredible. Now, that's changed. His world has now changed because suddenly he is probably the single most in-demand human being on the planet. Sam being the CEO of OpenAI. Exactly. And because OpenAI just created ChatGPT4 and that is like, like blowing every single CEO that I talked to. is like, it's now like we've all had knives before and now suddenly there's a machine gun is just made available on the market. Like if your product doesn't have ChatGPT4 embedded in it, by next month, there's going to be another product that does exactly what your product does with ChatGPT4, and there's going to be no comparison. And so it's not even a moat. It's just like table stakes. You just got to have it. So now everybody wants to talk to Sam. So now he doesn't quite respond in three minutes, or maybe he does, but there's just many more people inbounding him. But I think he was the person that when I first met him, and Brian Armstrong from Coinbase introduced me, and I guess also was because Sam was very transparent. He's like, Matt, I think coaching is bullshit. I'm going to meet with you one time because Brian Armstrong gave such a glowing recommendation, but that's it. And I was like, okay. And so we met one time and at the end of the meeting, he was like, all right, that was actually pretty good. I'll tell you what, we'll meet one more time, but that's it. No more than that. And I was like, okay, we'll meet one more time. And then we met again. And then at the end of that, he's like, yeah, you know, that, that was actually pretty good. Okay, we'll meet one more time. And it kept going like that. And I make the analogy to the uh, Wesley and the uh, Dread Pirate Roberts from Princess Bride. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, not yet, but you will. So it was really fun talking to him. But yes, he was probably the one like I was most, I hope this goes well, but I don't know if it will. And then it did. Yeah. On the responsiveness piece, I'm curious. I find that it has become framed as a bug, not a feature, meaning that the general tone that I hear from people is that burnout's a thing. You're most effective if you're not burned out. Therefore, you need to be able to shut down, remove yourself. And my perspective has always been one of, I can count on one hand, the amount of Sam Altman's that I have in my life that respond within five minutes to pretty much anything. And it means the world to me. They could say like three things. And that seems to me to be a bit at paradox with this idea that you also need to take space and time because you're always paying some version of a CPU tax, if you will, for availability. I'm not sure that they're in conflict with each other. Sam does maintain himself, his mind, his body. He does restore and he does it on a daily basis and he does it intraday. So it's not that you don't ever take the time to restore. It's that at least what Sam does is he just simply doesn't clog the rest of his day with standing meetings because standing meetings are insanely expensive. And so he's got one standing meeting, which is the OpenAI exec team meeting, or at least this is what it was a few years ago. I mean, not, the detail may be different now, although I doubt it. And that's it. And then the rest is open space. Now, including open space for his own team to reach out to him, which means he's also available to unblock them whenever they need him. And if he was in meetings. I know plenty of CEOs that are in meetings for 80 hours a week. And 
That scares me much more than someone who's responsive almost all the time. Because not all the time. They do sleep, they do eat, they do exercise, they do take ice plunges and saunas and whatever it is they do to maintain you know, good dopamine in their brain. Yeah. When I was getting ready for this, one of the articles that I read had a very flattering title. I think you probably know which one I'm talking about. How Matt Moshari became the preeminent tech world CEO. And it's very kind. Look, it is kind. Maybe it's overindulgent, but I don't know. If you look at your body of work with some of the folks that you've worked with, Sam being one of them, anyone from Bastion, founder of Postmates, to Eric at Open Door, to the Brex founders, the Reddit founder, Coinbase founder, OpenAI, Flexport, Fair. Naval. I don't want to leave people out. My partner, Mamoon, some of the yes. venture capitalists here in Silicon Valley. It's super impressive. Do you have anyone on your Mount Rushmore that you'd like to coach? Like I, I have, obviously, I have a Mount Rushmore of podcast guests. Do you have a Mount Rushmore? So I had a Mount Rushmore. And so when I first started coaching, I eventually got introduced to Naval and Naval came over to my house and we spent about an hour and a half and we solved this problem that he had for about 10 years and it worked. And so once we solved it, he was like, oh my God, Matt, that's crazy. You're like the best coach on the planet. And I didn't believe it, but I said, well, if that's the case, then I should be able to coach whoever I want. So I said, okay, Naval, I'll test this. So I made a list of my 20 people that I wanted to coach. And I said, Naval, do you know anyone on this list? And he's like, yeah, I know Brian at Coinbase. So he introduced me and then I started coaching Brian. And then after a few months, I said to Brian, do you know anyone on the list? And he said, yeah, I know Sam at you know, OpenAI. So he introduced me to Sam and and then, of course, I already shared that story with you. Eventually, after a few months, we kept meeting. And, and after a few months, Sam had deep trust in me. And I said, I showed the list to Sam. I said, do you know anyone on the list? And again, there was 20 people on it. And he said, yeah, I know everybody. And I was like, great. Can you introduce me? He's like, sure. And he introduced me to every single person on that list. Now, Elon Musk was on that list. Elon said, fuck you. I don't believe in coaches. They're bullshit. So there are people who responded that way. Like, not everyone responded positive. But I ended up coaching about half of those people. And then they were amazing, all of them. I mean, Zuckerberg was on that list. Sergey and, and Larry were on that list. So they obviously didn't say yes because I don't coach them. But the people that I did coach was like, that's, that satisfied my Mount Rushmore basically instantly. And then now there is one sort of category of person left that I'm curious about. And I recently, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, someone introduced me to Drew Taggart from the Chainsmokers. And it turns out that he thought he had a business challenge. It turns out it wasn't a business challenge. It turns out he just needed to make his next album. He needed to write all the songs. And he was just, just blocked. And so in just two sessions, we were able to figure out a, a strategy for him to get the creative juices flowing again. And we tried it. And he called me back two weeks later and said, Matt, I just wrote the best album of my life and I completed it. I complete I wrote 14 songs in two weeks and they're the best songs I've ever written. He says, it was all because of what you helped me do. And that felt really good. And it was super easy too. So I have curiosity in coaching more creatives, musicians, filmmakers, actors. That's a curiosity I'll go satisfy at some point. Is it true that you weren't charging for this stuff for a very long time? For a very long time, yeah. So what happened was I started out not charging anything, and then I, but I did invest. And so I would, this was like really early on when I was investing in students at Stanford or, you know, just recently graduated from Stanford. That's how it all started. I started coaching some students at Stanford. And so in the early days, I invested in these companies. And then as I look back on the first like 
15 or 20 people I coached, I look back, you know, where was friction created? And there were only two companies where friction was created. And both of them, the friction was around the equity. One of them was, in hindsight, they said they thought I took too much, which is probably legitimate. And the other one, in hindsight, said, hey, Matt, I tried to raise my next round. You didn't lead or participate. Everybody knows that you know all about my company and they know you have the money to invest. And if you don't do it, then you just kill the opportunity for me. And I realized, you know what? It's true. So I realized I couldn't invest anymore. And then I realized, why don't, why take any equity at all? Why take any cash at all? Like it does, I have plenty. I don't need any more. And so I just made the decision not to, just to eliminate that friction entirely. And what happened almost immediately was I then instantly my brain switched to, well, if I'm not making money, then there can only be one other thing that I'm doing. I can only be doing this because it's fun. And so anytime something happened that wasn't fun or I was doing something I didn't want to do that wasn't fun, I just said, I'm not going to do this. It allowed me to focus my coaching on what brings me the most fun. And I think what happened was people saw that and they saw how energized I am and how much I freaking love this. Because literally, if I don't love it, if I don't love the person or I don't love what I'm coaching or how I'm coaching, I just say, I'm not doing it anymore. And so that leaves only things that I absolutely love and people can feel that passion. It also makes me dive deep into studying and testing and experimenting and figuring things out that I wouldn't do otherwise and gives me real discoveries. I mean, that lasted for many, many years. And then about two years ago, Brian from Coinbase and Steve from Reddit both said, Matt, the system that you have, because I basically have a system for how to run a company. I didn't invent it. I just, you know, there are books written about this and there's, you know, Google's figured it out. Any large tech company has figured out a management system that works at scale. So Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, Netflix, etc. And these systems are documented. And so I've simply taken them, added a slight bit of my own flavor, but not really, and simply said, here it is. Here's the list of how you run a company. And that's all in Google Docs and it's available. And then the coaching is simply implementing the system so that I become the manager of the CEO. So I show them what it's like to be managed with the system. And if after three meetings, they feel more empowered, more engaged, then they're like, wow, this system really works. I want to manage this way and I want to implement it in my company. And then I say, great, go do it. Here are the Google Docs and just go implement it. But then the pushback I got from Brian and Steve was, you sat with me for two hours, three times before I really understood the system. I don't want to sit with all of my team members two hours, three times. I got thousands of employees for them to understand it. Can you please, Matt, just create some software that press a button, goes through the whole company, and they all operate this way. And I thought, no, it's not what I want to do. And Brian, you got 500 engineers working for you. Why don't you go build it? He's like, oh, I got to focus on Coinbase. And so finally, after a while, I was like, you know what? Okay, I'll try it. But I don't want to come out of my pocket and pay for these guys to build something for you guys. So you at least have to pay your share of the developer cost. So Brian and Steve were like, yeah, sure, no problem. And everybody else I coached said the same thing. So now I charge, but it all goes into an entity which pays the developer. So I don't take anything from it. 
Not that that really matters, but yeah, and it's working and we're building software and we haven't cracked the code yet because it's pretty darn complicated software. All the functionality is there, but the usability isn't quite there, but we're close and we'll get there. And in all of these things, the only way to fail is to stop. And so we're just not going to stop because I'm having too much fun and we're going to keep going until we crack the code and we will and that's it. What was conversation like at the dinner table when you were growing up? Was it achievement oriented? Were they asking you a million questions that has now been passed down to you as the question master? Were you the question master always growing up? What was that like? I know, and I'm not sure it's going to relate, but we did have family dinner together every night, but I don't really remember what the topic of conversation was. I think it was just like, you know, how was your day? What'd you do? Each person shared. I have no idea. I mean, I think you're going to say, you know, did that connect to you, Matt, coaching now? And if it did, I can't tell you what the connection is. Well, I'll tell you why I ask. One of the things that I believe is that it is a very formative time in a child's life when they are at the dinner table. Yeah. And I've asked, I think pretty much every guest, what was conversation like at the dinner table? And the correlation between whether it was maybe achievement oriented, whether it was work related, whether it was parents, you know, as an example, my parents would talk to each other about work. And so I constantly heard about achieving at work. Therefore, that's kind of what Jubin then blossomed into right. in his general disposition in life. So anyway, that's why I ask. Yeah. So as you say that, here's the conversation that comes up in my mind, which is likely the one that was most impactful for me. It wasn't actually at the dinner table, our family dinner table. It was with my grandfather who lived in Europe and we would go visit my grandparents, you know, three times a year and spend like a month each with them. So we spent a lot of time with them. And he would tell stories to me. He would make me ask lots of questions. He like dribble out little bits and pieces. I think he wanted to make it last for a decade. And he did. He made it last for a decade. And stories about him and what he did during World War II. I'm going to get a little emotional. And uh, Take your time. What happened was he was, uh, he was Hungarian. And the, the Nazis, of course, invaded Hungary. And they were pulling back from the Russian front. And so they then pulled back into Hungary. And they'd already occupied early in the, on the war, but they just rolled right through. And they just appointed the Hungarian fascists as the rulers of the country. And then the Nazis went to fight in Russia. And then again, Russia, they're losing. So they're now falling back. Now they enter into Hungary. This is now like 1944. And now that they've taken over Hungary, they're now stepping up the program of taking the Jews, putting them in the ghetto, shipping them in the train cars to Auschwitz, etc. And yeah. so my grandfather was this industrialist and he had these incredible organizational skills. So what he did was he realized that they weren't taking people who had neutral passports and Sweden was a neutral country. So together with the Swedish ambassador, he started printing fake Swedish passports because they didn't have time to go back to Sweden to get them. And he just handed out hundreds of thousands of Swedish passports to Hungarians. And the Nazis would see them, like the soldiers, would get confused, like, what? What's a Swedish national doing in Hungary? But they're like, you know what? I don't want to get in trouble. I'm not going to take this person. And through that, he saved hundreds of thousands of lives 
Now, at the very end, the Nazis didn't give a crap anymore. Like once the Russians were actually physically inside of Hungary and marching on Budapest, they just started taking people. They didn't even put them on trains anymore. They didn't even take them to Auschwitz. They just took people out of the Jewish ghetto, put them up against the Danube and just machine gunned them into the river. So at that point, the passports didn't work anymore. But then what my grandfather did in those final days was he took, had to physically hide people. So he took kids because they were the smallest and he physically hid them. So in the end, he probably only saved a thousand people. But I would listen to these stories and I would think, God, I want to be that. I want to be that hero. And so that's probably the thing. I probably seek places where I can feel like I'm a hero. Now, this isn't war. There's nobody dying. There's no good and there's no evil. This is just business and growing a hundred billion dollar business. That's not like we're not creating any inherent good in the world. But I, in my mind, can translate to, hey, we're having impact on the world in some way. I know it's a fiction, but it's the fiction that my mind wants to feel. That's the only correlation I can make. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That was not the answer that I expected. Wow. I'm not actually sure where to go from there. Thank you for sharing that. Um, we can go anywhere. <laughs> Let's I, not um, let that be a heavy moment. It makes a lot of sense is the honest answer. It makes a lot of sense. When you were growing up, when you went to Yale or when you went to Northwestern to get your MBA, was the hero complex always there? I think the hero complex was always there. It came out in different ways. I ended up, my first job out of college, I taught Outward Bound. And that was definitely satisfied my hero complex because here I was taking 10 newbies out for 28 days at a time into the back country. And the whole idea was to put them in situations where they felt like they were going to die and then have them actually not die and me guiding them through these situations. So it was, that was amazing. After Outward Bound, I moved to Minnesota and I had a job in a family company, but I would go to this church, this inner city Baptist church. And I realized that it was failing because the people, the congregation was poor and the building was crumbling. And and so I sort of went in and decided I was going to save the church. And I got a wealthy suburban church to adopt the inner city 98% black church. And they did. And they sort of provided the money and we saved the church and all kinds of good things happened. So that was another sort of hero complex thing. Then when I went to business school, I sort of had this decision like, what am I going to do? Am I going to go and do more work here in the inner city in Minneapolis? Or am I going to go to business school? And the thought that I had was, if I go make money, I can actually go do more good, more social good, as long as I remember to come back to doing social good. Sort of said, okay, that's what I'm going to do, but I've got to remember it. So I like meditated in my mind just to remember, come back to it, come back to it, come back to it. And so then I went to business school, ended up joining an investment firm, Spectrum Equity, ended up starting a company, Totality, which sold to Verizon. Now it's called Verizon Business. And so made the money. And then all of a sudden that meditation that I had, it kicked in in my brain, almost like this subliminal message. And I realized, okay, now I've got to go and do the social good I said I was always going to do. By the way, before then I went and had a ton of fun. I went and spent like three years just playing. But at a certain point, I'd had so much fun. I didn't want to have any more fun. 
And then I said, okay, now let me go do this social good thing. But then I thought, well, what should I do? And I thought, well, if I just go write checks to organizations, that's not really impacting anything. Let me go find the situation that no one else wants to be involved in, that no one else wants to help in. And I've shared this before, so this is not novel, but I had made, during the fun period, I had made two movies because movies are pretty darn fun to make. And one of them was in the slums of Rio. And there I had discovered that kids join the drug gang because there are no schools. So they, they have no marketable skills, so they can't get a job. But they still have to eat. So they join the drug gang because that at least puts food on the table. And it's not the worst kids that join the drug gang in the slums. It's the best kids that join because the drug dealers can choose from anybody. So they choose the best kids. And I thought, wow, thank God I live in a country where there's public education everywhere. So I came back to the U.S., did another movie on amateur heavyweight boxing. It turns out the best amateur heavyweight boxers all mostly live in the South Bronx and they train against each other. So I spent a lot of time in the South Bronx for a year. And it's a brutal ghetto. And I realized, wait a second, there are schools here, but they're so bad, the public schools, that they might as well not exist. So it's the same dynamic. These kids grew up without getting marketable skills. And also they usually get a criminal record because the way to sort of stay safe is to project an aura of scariness, of violence. So it's like they literally do violence in order to gain a reputation so that violence isn't done upon them. And of course, immediately they get a record. And once you've got a record in this country, it's so easy to do a background check. No one's going to hire you for a no-skill job, for an entry-level job. So they find themselves also still having to eat. And there also isn't welfare for young men. There's welfare for women with children, but there's not welfare for men. And so they find themselves having to do something to get food. So joining the drug gang is a logical choice. It's the rational choice. And I realized if I had been born in the zip code, this is what I would have done. And then I realized, wait a second, is there a way that I could take violent ex-felons and teach them how to get a legitimate job? And if I did, would they keep it? So I didn't know, but I figured, I don't think there's probably anyone else who's been in this situation, financially independent, has lived in two different slums in the world or spent real time in two different slums and has come upon this issue. Like there's probably no one else who's done that. So do I step into this spot and see if I can help or do I walk away? And I thought, if I don't do it, nobody will. And so I said, I'm not looking forward to it, but I'll try it. And so I did. And I pretty quickly discovered that it's actually a really easy problem to solve. It turns out that if people don't do a background check, when there's a shortage of labor for a particular job. And those are usually skill positions. So you get someone that skill, and then all of a sudden people don't care about their background, then they get the job. Once they get the job, which usually pays 80, 100 grand a year, instantly they have no incentive to go back into criminality because now they're paying for their apartment, their food, their car with legitimate money that doesn't put them at risk. Whereas if they do this illegal thing, they're constantly at risk. So of course they're going to choose the legitimate thing. So I've now trained hundreds of people and found out that trucking school was like the easiest way to give someone a hard skill where there was a huge shortage. And these guys can all pass the driving test because they're all very physical. The hardest part is the written test, but we let basically anyone who passes the written test will pay for them to go to trucking school. And the recidivism rate has been, I think two guys of the hundreds have gone back to, to prison. 
So there's another hero complex. What a story. Oh my goodness. Bear with me, but it feels like you've made a lot of overtures to get out of the matrix, to get off of the beaten path, the treadmill that everybody else is stuck on, that most of your clients are probably on. Like your background is with birds chirping in Kauai. I insisted on doing this in person. You're in your paradise. You sell the company. You go and around for a couple of years, you know, you do this incredible charitable work, you get to coach the, you know, now you're doing coaching, which, which is a ton of fun, ton of fun, and not, you know, not stressful, and not the hard work relative to not at all your clients or relative Absolutely. to the entrepreneurs. It's, it's that like I the work. cream of the crops fun stuff without all the labor that comes after the decisions are made. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel too. Was it hard originally? I get asked a lot, hey, Jubin, I'm done with my CEO gig, my founder gig, the CRO thing. I've made all this money. I'm ready to play golf. You know, yeah. I'm ready to leave and step away from the game. Yeah. Or, hey, I want to do what you're doing. I want to go be an operating partner at a venture firm and advise, right? I think that it's more seductive than it really feels. I wonder, what was your internal feeling when you were away from the game for years. What was that like? Because it seems to me like that's everyone's peak. It strikes me that everyone wants to do the IPO, sell the company, make the money, then step away from the game. It feels like you've achieved some version of that nirvana, if you will. I just wonder if you have any reflections on it. Does that make sense? I know that's totally long-winded. makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I also not only have a personal experience, but I also have coaching experience of bringing people through this journey because most of the people I coach at some point during our coaching together become billionaires and they're always waiting. And I don't introduce this until they have this experience themselves, but they grew up thinking that if I become the billionaire, then my life will be great. And then they become the billionaire and their life doesn't change. It's like having a birthday, nothing changed. And then they realize, oh shit, if I'm going to achieve happiness or satisfaction or peace, it's going to have to be something else. And then we start going and exploring that journey. And I'll come back to that. That wasn't exactly what you asked. You asked, mm, hey, no, it's good. Right, we'll come back to that. So for me, what happened was getting out of the matrix. I actually tried to get out of the matrix way early. So I sold my company. I think I was 31 and I made enough money that like that was it. I didn't have to make more money anymore. And it wasn't a huge amount, but I was also single and young and I, I didn't spend money. And I just went and started surfing. And I surfed for two straight years. And I could have done that forever. I wasn't good because I learned when I was 30. So I was just okay, intermediate. But I, it was so much fun. And what I realized was, even though I could do it forever, my friends stopped taking my calls about two years into it. And because they're like, you know, they're working really hard and they're being challenged in their day-to-day life. And they kind of don't want to hear about my easy purely blissful days anymore. And I had a choice to make. Do I keep doing what I'm doing or do I keep my friends? I guess I could not talk about it, but they all knew what I was doing. And I realized, you know what? I kind of like my friends. I said, I got to put myself in a similar challenging situation. And that's when I said, well, what's challenging? Well, making a movie is challenging, but, and I also wanted to be something that was fun. And people seem to think that making movies is fun. I've never wanted to make movies, but it definitely seems challenging. 
And people who do it seem to like it. So, okay, maybe I'll go try that. Because they didn't want to go back and do another business because the result of that is it just creates a lot more money and I just didn't need or want more money. So I chose the film and that actually ended up being great. And it was super fun. Again, I made those two films. They were super challenging, but in the end, figure outable. Making a movie is like starting a company. They can figure out what audiences would be interested in seeing and create that product and serve the product up to them. And in fact, filmmaking is probably the most entrepreneurial business I've ever been involved in because each and every film is like a new company because you don't get any carryover from the last film you made. Certainly if you're the filmmaker, like if you're the actor, if you're Tom Cruise, yes, there's some carryover from film to film. But as the filmmaker, no one cares. And so I did try to truly step off the matrix. But what I realized is, is that I actually want to be engaged in society. I want to be engaged in what my friends are engaged in. So when I came back actually from, I did the films and then got married. And then we came back, my wife said, Matt, we can live anywhere as long as it doesn't snow. I thought, oh, great. Let's live in Northern California because there's great physical, great weather, great Stanford, great education, great academics in the area and great business with the tech community. It's like the trifecta. So we moved back to California and this was all already when I had started working with ex-felons and getting them into trucking school. And I was loving it. I mean, talk about feeling like a hero. Like, oh my God, I felt like I was saving lives every day. And again, I don't think that's actually true. I don't actually think that any one of us impacts the world in any way that's good or bad. I think the world just is. But I could fool myself into thinking that I was a hero. And so I wanted to keep doing it, but I also wanted to be with my friends. And so I kept inviting them to join me. I'd started my career in Silicon Valley in, in the Bay Area, so I had tons of friends there. And none of them would join me. They're all like, Matt, you're crazy. Like, you will get killed one day. And I thought, well, I really want to spend time with them and they won't come join me. So I guess I got to go join them. And they're all in the tech business. So I decided to come back into the tech business. But again, I didn't want to do all the work. So that's when I said, well, maybe coaching. Because coaching is kind of like just the fun stuff. And then make the decisions. And then, or help make the decisions. And then not do the work. So that's how it led there. And yeah, I guess I did step out of the matrix. But not into retirement. To me, retirement is, well, maybe there are people who enjoy it. But I'm such an extrovert, I'm such a people person that I want to be engaged and deeply engaged. Like I want deep connection with many people. And so for me, that meant coming back into the active world and coaching gives me that because within three, four meetings, my God, people are like, I am so connected to them. They are so connected to me. We know each other so well. We're so enmeshed in the most important aspects of each other's lives. And we become deep friends. And so, yeah, I couldn't ask for a better role. Can you revisit the reflections that you had about founders that you coach? Yeah, yeah. So what happens is, I, mean, I think you meant the billionaire comment. Yes. Once they become billionaires, again, they have this realization that their life actually isn't better. And then they need to go find something else. Now, some of them are tempted to stop doing what they're doing. And I always encourage them not to, because I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a yes and. I think they can keep being CEO of their company if they're enjoying it. And they can find deeper satisfaction and peace through. It turns out that what has been most effective is there are people who 
have just gone off and studied peace creation. And it turns out those things, people have discovered things. And it's really kind of the hippie community that's done this. This is all comes out of Taoist and Hindu traditions that are thousands of years old. And this whole thing around meditation and breath work and mindfulness and consciousness and all of these things are well studied and produce these results of actual peace and actual satisfaction. And so most of the CEOs that I've coached eventually start experimenting with those things. That's where they find deep satisfaction. Yeah, my favorite couple examples that I've referenced on the show before is um, Freddie, the Okta co-founder, yeah. was talking about the climb to the summit. Once they IPO'd, he woke up Monday morning at 6 a.m. on a customer call with Europe. And he's like, that's not how I expected my Monday to start. Henry Schuck from Zoom Info had a not dissimilar experience when he sold half the business and made more money than he ever could dream of. And he was flying again to a customer meeting that next week, sitting in the middle seat of coach. And he's like, yep, just hasn't stopped. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Yes. Do you have a way that you could describe company building to an alien visiting you in Kauai, someone that has literally no idea, how would you describe company building? Sure. Well, first of all, I think there are two parts to company building. There are two phases. One is, at least in the tech world, in the product world, there's building a product that has product market fit, so zero to one. And then there's scaling that product once you have product market fit, you know, one to 10 million. And those are two very distinct pieces. And one has almost nothing to do with the other. And in fact, it's almost a little dangerous. Like once you have a product and you're scaling it, the process of improving that product is radically different than the process of building a product from zero to one. So it's almost dangerous. Product managers in a scaling company don't actually do a very good job of creating new products. You have to go back to founder types, but I'm getting into too much detail. So building a company is on the zero to one side. I mean, there's lots written about this. The key is to solve real problems that real people have, as opposed to sitting around saying, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I built blank and then building it and then see who'll buy it. That almost never works. What works is going into talking to a bunch of people that you'd like to serve, finding out what their actual hair on fire problems are, seeing, oh, okay, now I see this commonality, like this hair on fire problem has come up among all these heads of marketing and energy companies, if that, those are the people that you want to serve, and then going and creating the simplest possible solution, like something you can sketch on a piece of paper and putting that in front of them and saying, hey, does this partially solve your problem? And then they use it and go, oh, it's, yeah, it's pretty good, but it doesn't do this. I wish you could do these other things. Getting real feedback. So the idea is to get feedback, not to create a good solution. In fact, the idea is to create a crappy solution so that you get the feedback. And Having a crappy solution may actually give you more feedback. And then with that feedback, go build a better solution. But very quick, very short, in a week. And then with that better solution, go put it in front of those same potential customers. See what, how they react to that. And keep iterating that way with prototype, 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 until you've got one, two, three, four of them say, I want to buy this. I want to use this. Now you got product market fit. And by the way, you never, ever, ever worry about 
scaling or writing industrial code until you've got real paying customers because industrial code is just going to slow you down and you want to write spaghetti crappy prototype code no code doesn't even freaking matter in order to create those prototypes because again you're trying to cycle feedback as quickly as possible that's the product market fit stage now from scaling onwards once you actually have those customers who want it now you got to worry about infrastructure now you got to worry to make sure your site goes, doesn't go down now you got to make sure you got security but only then and then unfortunately you're gonna have to hire more people because you're gonna have to hire engineers who build the infrastructure and build the security and then salespeople who sell it and customer support people who take the calls unless you're rippling and you don't even have customer support people which i think is genius but most companies solve scaling by hiring people i disagree with it i think hiring people is the lazy person's approach to scaling I think if you look at companies like Linear, which I think now has maybe 40 people, maybe less, Notion, which up until a while ago had like 50 people, these are companies that are bringing in serious revenue. I think that's the answer is to simply not add people and just create leverage. If you need software, use software internally, but create leverage for your own people to just do more and more and more. But that's not what most companies do. Most companies just hire more people and then they have the problem of, well, how do you get these people to actually do something useful, do something net positive? Because what most companies experience is once they go beyond 20 people in one location or once they go remote, all of a sudden people don't really know what they're supposed to be doing because they don't overhear the conversations of the CEO. If everybody could overhear the conversations of the CEO, they know exactly what to do. They know exactly what the CEO, what their priorities are. But once they can't hear them anymore, then they just work on what they think they should be working on with the very limited information they have, which is usually not enough information. So they're just working on kind of useless stuff. And so companies hire better and better and better people, and they do less and less and less. And CEOs get very frustrated. But the answer, of course, is this information sharing system where the CEO's priorities can get transmitted to the whole company on a regular basis. And the problems that the team members are experiencing can get transmitted back up to the CEO so that she can go unblock them. And that system, again, is very well documented. And that's the next phase. That's the phase of implementing that system. And you can always tell when a company's implemented the system effectively because they scale. So Amazon clearly did a good job of implementing the system. Take another you know, thousand examples of companies that hit product market fit, and then went like this, almost universally. The reason they failed was because they didn't implement a, an effective management system to share information among the team. That's it. That's company building right there, whole thing. Connecting two random dots that you just put out, the thing that I find extremely interesting about what Parker and the Rippling team have done is they do not hire product managers to build new product. They hire founders who go get four or five engineers who are basically sidecars to the business and they put them on a resource-constrained diet until they release the product into the wild and then they iterate. That's exactly right. Yeah. This is the way to create new product in a scaled company. I think we got, have to give a head nod to Wee Dang at Clipboard Health, and we and Parker are good friends. I'm not sure who did that first. I think it actually might have been Wee who did it first, but it doesn't matter. There are two you know, of the few that do it. I think Jala at Mutiny, 
is doing this as well. I would put her on the forefront of new product creation. Brian Long, an attentive mobile, has been doing this. This is now becoming that word, that methodology is spreading. And not only is it effective, it's the only thing that's effective. I have not seen any other version of creating new product in a scale company that works other than that. What are some of the big rocks, Matt, that people come to you for? If the world's most high-achieving CEOs and their corresponding companies are coming to you, are there big buckets that you could categorize what they're coming to you for? Because what I'll say is that there is a very consistent theme amongst the archetype of person that you work for. Let's put the venture people aside, but you could actually categorize them all somewhat similarly, which doesn't look very different from the Kleiner Perkins portfolio, which is highly technical, very product oriented. And the bet that we're making is that we can teach them a set of skills and help and surround them with the business building side of things. Because the product in technology companies is ultimately the thing that matters. If you agree with me reductively that this is I do. the archetype of people that you're generally working with, I wonder with that framework, yeah, are there big buckets of things that they come to you for? Absolutely. That they struggle with. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The people that I coach are almost always product visionaries. They're the founders. They're the ones who said they did the process we just talked about. They talked to the customers, found out their problems, built a solution, and they were just obsessed with that process until the customers bought it and were using it and solved their problems. And then at that point, all of a sudden, these founders find themselves CEOs of 100-person, 1,000-person, 5,000-person companies. I'm like, what? I didn't sign up for this. I don't want to manage people. I want to build product. I want to talk to customers, find their problems, and then build them a solution. But now they're thrust into that CEO role. And so, yeah, almost always the challenges that they face are like people management, relationships. How do I get people to buy into these decisions? How do I delegate in a way that people actually perform? And so one by one, we can go through these people management problems, but with everybody I coach, I say, there, there's another way that's just a whole lot easier and I'll share it with you. Some say yes and some say no, but that is, you can just hire someone to go run it for you. And by the way, they're probably going to do a much better job because they actually love the people management and you hate the people management. And then you can go back to doing what you're really great at, which is product vision, and go back and be the head of new product and build more new product. And I would say more and more are starting to do this now. In the beginning, there was a lot of, well, no, I got to, you know, I, I'm supposed to be the CEO. I'm supposed to do all these things. But I now need to go learn that skill. Exactly. But now as more and more people are successfully hiring that number two, as Brian did with Emily at Coinbase, I think we could go through a, a whole bunch more examples. Now... There's no tarnish there anymore. It used to be like, oh, that's embarrassing that I, I couldn't do it myself. I had to hire somebody like, that's terrible. I had to give up, you know, 2% of the company. That's crazy. Like, are you kidding? Give me a break. Who cares? And so now that Brian's done it and others have done it, Zuckerberg did it, it's becoming accepted and more and more people are choosing to hire the COO. Now, one key thing is, is that if people hire the COO, basically the only thing I do at that point is make sure they onboard that person well. 
The same thing is like a CEO transition. Like Brad Hoover from Grammarly just announced that he's transitioning to a new CEO. And the key is giving that person all the context that the original CEO has. And we've tried many different ways. The one that really has stuck is what we discovered when we started implementing chief of staffs. And that is, if you take on a chief of staff, you don't want to spend time doing one-on-ones with them and explaining them to them what they need to do. Instead, we discovered this method of just have this chief of staff shadow you. As you know, it's free. Like It doesn't take any time. And they just shadow you. And then they learn a ton. And then we started realizing, wait a second, these chief of staffs were having like near 100% success onboarding them and then having them go take over departments and running entire departments, like near 100% success. But when we hire an executives from the outside, we're having about a 50% hit rate. It means 50% failure rate. And these executives are much more experienced, have much better track record. So crazy. And what we realized it was the onboarding. And so we then start experimenting with bringing on executives and have them shadow either the CEO or whoever's doing that role currently for two, three months before they actually take their job, start their job, you know, take responsibility for it. And the results just shot through the roof. So that's what we're now doing with COOs. They sit and they shadow the CEO for one, two, three months before they do anything. They understand the customer. They understand the product. They understand the people. They understand how the company's working. Now, can they manage better than the CEO? Sure. And they eventually will, but there's no downside in delaying that by three months. Like if you could delay them taking responsibility and go from a 50% success rate to a 98% success rate, would you? The answer is of course. And again, the more examples we see that work there, the more CEOs are willing to do that shadowing. And some CEOs have pushed back and said, well, wait, Matt, there's no self-respecting person, senior exec that would want to do that shadowing of me, 28-year-old, know nothing. I go, okay, let's ask. So we do. We ask the candidates, do you want a shadow for three months? So far, the answer has been, hell yes. Why? Because every exec knows that the biggest risk to their success is the first 90 days because they're thrown into a role where they don't know the customer, they don't know the product, they don't know the team members, and yet they're being held responsible for making decisions. They're taking guesses. They have no clue. After about 90 days, they have enough information to start making good decisions. But that first 90 days, they don't. So they all know that that's the riskiest part. So from an exec standpoint, they love the idea of shadowing. It gives them the perfect onboarding process with no responsibility for decision-making. It's ideal. And so we haven't had a single exec say no. In fact, they all freaking love it. Isn't it almost romantic? It's crazy, but also a little romantic, this idea that we give these folks so much money to go pursue a like impossible task it's so cool that this is the way that the system works and i would argue that it's even more cool and admirable that there is people there's founders willing to go do this it's fucking crazy it is crazy well, i'm not sure we should give say it's admirable i mean it's fun it's fun to be a founder oh man i do you think so? Yes, I do. <laughs> I absolutely do. I find it a bit masochistic. 
Okay. If the goal is I must succeed, then yes, then it's super painful because every day that goes by, I haven't yet succeeded. And then I tell myself I'm a failure. Then it's painful. But if the goal is to experience an intense situation and a crazy challenge, then every day is a success because there's going to be a challenge every single freaking day. Maybe I'm speaking idealistically and maybe it's easy for me to say this because I'm not there directly. Maybe I'm idealizing it. And actually, well, I just I, think it's one of the hardest things that you could possibly do. And it is. just to give a counter example or maybe a, just a different perspective, like you get to work with the really good founders, yeah, they're succeeding. The, the, the ones that are <laughs> right, crushing right. it. You know? That is true. You know, there is a graveyard of those that have tried and failed. That's true. Whether or not you do it for the pursuit of success or the pursuit of a challenge, you still want to win. You still That's want true. it to be a positive outcome for your That's employees, true. you know, for the people that you sold the vision to, your investors, the people that you took your seed money from, your family, your friends. That's true. It's an admirable conquest. I really do think so. Anyway, maybe I'm romanticizing it. Too, so <laughs> I don't know. There's a thing that you talk about with Brian Armstrong where you say, Brian, the Coinbase CEO, where you talk about the way that he accepts feedback. Oh, yeah. You say he loves Craves it. feedback. Crazy. Never gets angry. And it felt to me reading your reflections of the way that Brian takes feedback that he spikes in a level that most do not. Would that be fair? And if so, maybe could absolutely. you explore that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Totally fair. I mean, here's where I've seen this commonality. I've seen it among people who graduated from Stanford Business School. And Brian, it's more than it being willing to accept the feedback. Most people can get there, but that category, GSB grads and Brian crave it. Like they like actively seek it and like the harder, the better. And it's almost like this masochistic thing, this kink, but it's really wonderful because it helps them grow really fast. And it also makes people trust them because of course, we always have things that we want to share with the people we work with, but we always feel like a little, oh, I don't want to tell what I say, what I really think, because if I do, the person's going to get offended and then I'm going to have an enemy and God, I don't want an enemy. So we as humans don't give our full feedback to almost anybody. We always withhold, but then we kind of feel a little bit of a resentment because the person continues to do the thing that we wish they wouldn't do or doesn't do the thing we wish they would do, but we're not fully telling them. And so when someone appears who just like, I crave it, give it to me, give it to me hard. And then you do, and you just give it to them like full on. And they go, thank you. And then they actually change. You're like, whoa. The biggest thing that happens is our resentment disappears because our withholds disappear. It's the single most powerful tool I know for creating deep relationships. I mean, I'll tell a little story about how uh, Pat Grady doesn't mind, Pat Grady at Sequoia, and he runs the growth fund. And when I was introduced to him, I went down to Sequoia's offices, we met for the first time. And about halfway through the coaching session, I could see Pat's face turning red. I was like, oh God, this guy is, something's not right here. Like he's getting angry at me. 
I didn't know why. I didn't know what was going on. But I said, you know what, Pat, let's just stop here. Can you please let me know how this session's working for you? Rate it on a scale of one to five, three being meeting expectation, five being could be any better, one being could be any worse. What do you like about it? What would take it to the next level? So he said, okay, I'll rate it. So I'd give it a, I forget what number it was. It was either a one or a two. Like he was clearly not liking it. I said, great. Is there anything you liked about it? I said, yeah, I'd like that you did this. Okay, great. Well, what would take it to the next level? He said, well, Matt, I forget what it was he said, but he said something like, you're doing this and it's pissing me off and I really wish you'd do this instead. And so I repeated it back to him. I said, Pat, I think you said that I'm doing this. It's pissing you off and you really wish I'd do this other thing instead. And he said, yes. I said, okay, how about I do that right now? He's like, okay. So I did. And you could see this face just the normal color returned, but there was also this sort of light that went off in his eye. And you realize that he realized that, oh my God, Matt actually wants feedback and actually is willing to do something about it, like in the moment. And suddenly Pat realized, I can have Matt be whatever I desire, whatever would be most useful for me. Matt's going to do that. All I have to do is share with him, but clearly, He's super open to the sharing. And suddenly there was instant bond. And so what I realized then was, and this is a little bit bad, but I realized that that distance from what you think people are and they're pissing you off to suddenly they really please you. Almost like the longer that distance is, the more trust gets created. So after that, when I met with people for the first time, I would do things that would grate on them. I'd be okay with that. Because then I'd take feedback and they'd share what created them and then I would change it right there in the moment. And then all of a sudden it built trust again. So this craving of feedback and being willing to really make someone feel heard and then if, if it resonates with me acting on it, and again, Brian does this beautifully, it's a very powerful tool. And again, it creates connection, but it also improves how people work together. I mean, it's just, it's a magic pill. And then also... You know, people ask me, how did I develop the things I do during coaching? And almost everything I do, I did not invent. Almost everything came as a suggestion from somebody else. Either someone I coach or a book or something. And it almost all of it came through this feedback process. You know, I wish you would do blank. I saw this other person. They did this. It was really effective. I wish you would do that too. Okay, great. Start doing that. Done. Can you talk about someone's zone of genius? I think this is a fascinating concept that you like to explore. Sure, sure. Yeah. So zone of genius, the whole idea is that there's four levels. There's our zone of incompetence. These are things that we're not good at. Like if you don't know how to fix a car, that's your zone of incompetence. And obviously you should hire someone else to do it because you can't. The second is our zone of competence. This is something we could do, but so can many other people like clean your bathroom. You can probably do that, but it's not fun. Don't enjoy it. And there's someone you can hire to do it who do it just as well as you can, maybe better, but certainly as well as you can. So you're probably better off having someone else do that for you as well. Those two are pretty easy. We all know that. Then there's the next level, which is your zone of excellence. This is the dangerous one. This is one where you're really good at it, but you don't love it. And people value it. So they're willing to pay you for it. And so you make money doing it. And more importantly, there are a lot of other people who want you to keep doing it because it creates value for them. 
So they try to keep you there. And unless you're bold, you will stay there. Because again, you're getting financially rewarded for it and you're getting praised for it. And this is sort of like the death trap. Then there's the next level. And that is zone of genius. Now, this one's a little harder to find because it's something you do where you create tons of value, but you also love it. And you love it so much that space and time disappear. And so you probably don't even consider that you're creating value because it's so easy for you. You don't even notice that you're actually doing anything. If you can get into that area, you will not only create massive value, like way more than your zone of excellence, but you'll be loving every minute of it. And I posit that you can only be truly great at something if you absolutely love it. But the problem is to identify what that is, you kind of got to rely on the people around you. You got to ask them. You say, listen, when you notice me, what do you notice that I seem to do better than anyone you know and seem to really enjoy it? And they'll tell you, you do this, you know, Matt. I'll go, really? That, that has value? Like, yeah, that has so much value. Like, really? Because to me, I'm just having fun. And so once you identify what that is and you go do more of that and less of the zone of excellence, magic things start to happen. Do you have an example of someone that you coached that this was life-changing for them? Yes, definitely. I mean, many people, but I'll give the example of Enrique and Pedro at Brex. So we did this exercise with the two of them and what they quickly realized was, there's another way to do the exercise. You can go through your calendar, like a representative two weeks, it's called an energy audit and just go through hour by hour and mark what you actually did. So sometimes you're in meetings, obviously that's on the calendar, but sometimes you're not in a meeting, sometimes you're just responding to emails. So write down what you actually did hour by hour and then mark green for it raised my energy and red for it was either neutral or it decreased my energy. And then you go back and look at these one or two weeks that are marked green and red and you start to make correlations. You list all, you only look at the red ones and say, what are these things that are not raising my energy? And you start to make correlations like, oh, one-on-ones with people who aren't prepared, team meetings where there's no meeting owner and there's no pre-writes. Oh, informational interviews from friends of friends, recruiting interviews of people that we end up not hiring. Those are very common categories. And they go, okay, we'll get rid of those. And then there's three ways to get rid of them. Either they don't need to happen at all, or they need to happen, but someone else can do them. So you delegate it. Or they need to happen, but only you can do it. So for that, you ask the question, well, what would make it exquisite for you? So you could have this team meeting. You would love it as long as what? And the person says, well, as long as they're a team owner, a meeting owner, as long as they shared the agenda beforehand, as long as they caused everyone to pre-write, as long as they caused everyone to pre-read and comment, then it would be fun for me because then we'd go right into deep discussion and we'd come up with great answers. Like, okay, you just wrote that out. Now, please share that with your team. Ask them if they're open to it. Almost always they say yes. Great, and make that happen. So once you start cutting away the energy draining things, now you have more open space. Now you're naturally going to fill it with things that you love to do and are really good at. And that's another way to get at the zone of genius. But the example of Enrique and Pedro is we did this exercise. We went through their calendars and we instantly realized that previously they'd split the company so that Enrique took half the team, managed half the team, and Pedro managed half the team. And Pedro managed like EPD and Enrique managed go-to-market, sales, marketing, customer support. And what they quickly realized was Enrique did not enjoy the internal 
management meetings, but loved the external relationship meetings. And customers, investors, partners, and Pedro, by contrast, did not like the external relationship meetings, but loved the internal management meetings. Pretty easy solution. What about Pedro? You do all the internal. Enrique, you do all the external. And I said, okay, let's try it. I mean, it seemed crazy. It seemed radical. And they did it. Totally worked. Not only changed their lives, changed Brex's trajectory. And I would argue that Pedro is one of the best internal operators on the planet. And Enrique is certainly one of the best external relationship people on the planet. There are fewer of them. So it's fair enough. Like there are many internal operators. There are very few people that are just externally facing. And so, I mean, Enrique is in in a category of one there, I think. Maybe Sam Altman. Those are the two that I put in this, you know, incredible external roles. And so, yeah, change the trajectory of Brax. In fact, they loved it so much. They said, Matt, would you please come in and do this energy audit exercise with all of our managers? So we did. We did this like crazy two hour. I think there were like 50 managers at the time. We had them all do it. It was like a big, bold bet. Can you imagine taking all your managers and letting them decide what did and didn't energize them? What if they didn't weren't energized by managing their team? Like all of a sudden they wouldn't be managers anymore. But that's not what happened. And it ended up being a great thing for the company generally. And they found like this, I don't like doing this thing, but they found someone who did, was passionate about it. In your book, what's the book called? Sorry. The Great CEO Within. The Great CEO Within. It's all online? Yeah. Like is the whole thing, because I read pretty much the whole thing and I'm like, I didn't buy this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I felt, it's all online. I, I felt a little guilty. It's on Amazon for the absolute lowest price that they'll let me put it. So I get zero profit there, but they won't let me go any lower. Okay, sorry, I messed up to that. that. I should have bought a book. No, 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 um, no, no, no. It's only, I only put it online for people who prefer a paper book, but yeah. you don't have to. Yeah. I want you to read the information. I don't care how you read it. Like, again, the money doesn't matter to me. I don't make any money. I make the same amount of money from the Amazon book as the online book, zero. And I just want people to read it. That's all. There's a section in the book that I loved. I think it was under gratitude where you were talking about how we were trained when we were younger to ask what went wrong versus what went right. Can you just describe that? I found it so fascinating. Yeah. Well, I think for me what it is is whatever question we ask, our brains will give us the answer. The way our brain works is we try something, we perceive the results, we see where the results were off, and our brain adjusts towards where it was off. So the brain is constantly asking, how did I miss the mark? How far off am I? Okay, let me adjust. Like we're throwing a baseball. First time you throw a baseball, goes wide. Okay, it goes wide right. Great. Now I know I need, it was wrong 10 degrees to the right. Great. So let me adjust back 10 degrees to the left. So we're constantly asking ourselves, what went wrong? What went wrong? What went wrong? So we probably get the answer. What went wrong? What went wrong? What went wrong? So all we're surrounded by internally in our brain is everything going wrong constantly all the time. And eventually, that has an effect on our psyche, which makes us feel, in some ways, that we are constantly failing. But there's a little hack you can do to counter that feeling. And that is simply ask, okay, 
Today, what went right? What happened that was good? I mean, it sounds stupid, but if you ask that question, you'll actually, your brain will give you an answer. And then you get to relive those moments of success. I'm like, wow, today was actually a really freaking great day. And that's it. And if you do that repeatedly, life suddenly becomes really fun. And you can take the same exact day and turn it from making you feel like a failure to making you feel like a success. And success is very motivating. It motivates me to keep going. Why do you think our default state is to ask what's wrong versus right? I think it's just the way the brain works naturally. It's an iteration machine. And that's just how the brain works. Again, it's like you throw the ball here. Okay, it's off by 10 degrees. Like it's how far off am I is the question the brain keeps asking. What's not right about this? Let me adjust what's not right about it. It's just how the brain works. I don't think there's any philosophical or mystical reason of why that is. I think it's simply biomechanics. I could ask questions legitimately all day, but I unfortunately am constrained by time. One more. You have a quote in the book that says, startups don't usually fail because they grow too late. They usually fail because they grow too early. This is a misconception that I agree with so wholeheartedly that most founders in my experience don't see that way. Please tell me more. And this is actually, you know, you mentioned this before, you know, we give founders all this money. That's actually one of the challenges is that we do give founders a ton of money. So what do founders do with money? Well, they just, they go hire people. That's almost the only expense. I guess you can do paid advertising, but when you don't have product market fit yet, no one's going to do paid advertising, but people are still willing to hire people. And what I find is that NYC figured this out a long time ago. They say no more than six people until you get product market fit, preferably three, but no more than six. And what they realized was, is that the more people you have, the harder it is to pivot. The harder it is to get negative information from customers and change what it is you're doing because there just becomes this expectation of stability the more people there are in an organization. So the 10th person who joins says, oh, I'm joining a stable company that already has traction. And when the customer reaction comes back like, no, this sucks. You got to do something completely different. They're like, what? They don't want to believe it. Whereas if you join a company of two people and you're the third, you know that that company has no traction at all. In fact, you're attracted to that. You want that. You want to be in the trenches where the bombs are coming left and right and the customer is saying, no, this is terrible. You want to be in that sort of figure it out from scratch mode. And frankly, you'll be willing to actually listen to the feedback that you get and pivot the way you need to pivot, that's what I think the difference is between three people. I'd much rather back a company of three people than 20 people to go create a new product. Much rather. I always conclude these things the same way. Well, actually, I usually have two questions. The first is, are you hiring? And maybe that's potentially not applicable here, but are you accepting new clients? So. I am not because I'm totally and utterly full, but 
I have, like on the software side, where people say, will you please create software? And I finally said yes. On the coaching side, people said, will you please hire and train and work with other coaches so that they can share your methodology, Matt? So I finally did. So about a year ago, I started hiring coaches and we now have six coaches, all of whom are phenomenal. Frankly, I think they're better than I am. And yes, so we have coaching capacity among them. Okay. And I think there'll be a link in the notes of the yep. website. It's exactly. Yep. Same with the book. Last one. What does the word grit mean to you? What do you think of when you hear the word grit? Not stopping. That's it. That's what it means to me. And enjoying, looking forward to the challenge. Viewing it as literally, I want the challenge. Bring it on. The harder, the better. The Brian Armstrong, give me the tough feedback. The harder the feedback, the better. To me, that's grit. Yeah, the person that starts the company for the sake of the challenge. There you go. Matt Moshara, I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Awesome. Great talking to you. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to check out more than 100 past interviews that we've done and more amazing guests to come every Monday morning. This episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in for an hour plus every week. 